0: And welcome back to another episode of Queer Science. I'm Brie, one of your co-hosts, editor, and co-creator for this podcast, and I am a proud plant daddy.
1: And I'm R, your other co-host, resident artist, and here to put the funk in dysfunctional.
0: Today we're sitting down with Wesley Jackson Wade, a mental health and career counselor at North Carolina State University, where he is also pursuing a doctorate in counseling and counselor education. Why Wes?
1: Well, as we've mentioned before, queer science is about more than just LGBTQ people in STEM. Queer science is about making spaces welcoming for everyone, which includes discussing mental health and neurodiversity. Plus, there seems to be an overlap between queer experiences and those with attention issues, as Brie can testify.
0: Yep, I'm hella chaotic and hella queer. Fun little tidbit, I actually got to know Wes through Dr. Jamila Simpson, who appeared on our very first episode. And he studies alongside Sam Simon, who was featured in our last two episodes. Basically, everyone here at Queer Science is connected somehow. In this episode, our
1: guest will share a bit about his
0: experiences
1: with ADHD, the impact COVID-19 has had on neurodivergent folks like him, and the relationship between neurodiversity and substance abuse.
2: So my name is Wesley Jackson Wade, and I am a career counselor at North Carolina State University in the Career Development Center, where I work with and serve students in the College of Sciences from like, traditional first-year students all the way through PhD. In addition, I do some work with military and veteran students. I am on the advisory council for the Black Male Initiative, which is a living and learning village at NC State. And I've been doing that for about like four years, uh, give or take. And I also lead the Students Moving Forward program that Dana Thomas and I co-created about four years ago, which is a career focused program for autistic students. And in addition to that, I am a certified clinical mental health counselor and a licensed clinical mental health counselor and a licensed clinical addiction specialist. And I am in the third year of my doctoral program in the counseling and counselor ed track at NC State in the College of Education.
1: That's all? Like, you're not doing like, you're not like scuba diving and skydiving. Yeah. And what well, your podcast?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm not even gonna say that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> and I, I and, and I have a podcast called Peace, Love, Power that I started in late 2019 and got a little sidetracked um, due to COVID, but it's coming back, it is definitely coming back.
0: Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is something that is often associated with children. However, ADHD is a condition that still occurs within adult populations, with 2.8% of adults diagnosed as having ADHD.
2: I have a brother. I only have one sibling, my younger brother. I love him very much. And he's like almost 10 years younger than me, and he got diagnosed around the time he was 5 with ADHD. When he got diagnosed, you know, I was around 14 or 15, and I was like, wait a minute. I do this though, like, hmm. so when he got diagnosed, like I paid attention to it. I liked that. My other friends who were that, um, one of my best friends, my brother from another mother, he's godfather of my child and godfather, his, um, children as well. And he's a medical doctor and, um, he realized that he was ADHD and I was like, okay, my homeboy is like, I definitely am too. And so that was, you know, years ago, we were in undergrad or late high school at that point in time. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm aware of it, but you know, here I am out here, you know, abusing substances, being wild, doing my thing and like just doing enough. Right. So I can get through, but I'm also learning like, um, aspects of like negotiation. You know, I still got aids in these things in my classes because I'm good at negotiating my grades with my professors and I've done that my whole life. Um, and so, uh, I knew that I was probably a thing, but I had developed my own ways of doing things by trial and error and learning, like, you know, how my energy works. Because uh, sometimes ADHD can mimic aspects of bipolar disorder like one or two because there can be like mood swings with things and i can be really moody like as as my partner and um you know some days i wake up and i'm just like oh guys i can't i can't do this today like i just everything's terrible and i feel like depressed and um there's a lot of different reasons why that comes about some reasons is because you're trying to you're brain works really well in certain areas, but not in other ones. So my, um, uh, ability, you know, to manipulate numbers and go through numbers and all this stuff is not good. Like, um, is on a low end average or below average, but my verbal reasoning and my reading comprehension, when I did some assessments for my ADHD is like 99th percentile. Like I'm very good at that. end. so when I'm doing things and I'm reading these problems or things and I'm like, I don't get it. Like it, causes frustration and it can it, chemical um, things going on in your head and it can just lead to like, uh, mood swings or you get interrupted and all this other stuff. And so like, I was aware of that. I, well, I didn't know what that, what well, I didn't attribute that to that, but I knew that I had that. Right. And I didn't know that was an area of ADHD. And so I'm like, okay, I'm here. And then, you know, I go through my life and you know all that other stuff. And you know, I do a career change. Now I'm in my master's program. And I learn about the DSM and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I definitely have this, right? Like I'm studying the DH the DSM. Like I'm a, I'm a licensed clinician. I can diagnose people. So I'm like, oh yeah. Um Yeah, I meet all of these criteria because you have to I don't remember what it is, but like there's different sets of criteria and you have to meet a certain number of those criteria within each set for a certain period of time and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I meet all of these criteria for all my life. (laughs) and So um, uh, I was like, okay, I definitely have this. And then when I was in my private practice partnered with a physician's assistant for a year and worked with a lot of people who were, had substance abuse issues, uh, mostly heroin and opioids. And, um, they were on methadone and Suboxone and things along those lines. And so I didn't also have like some younger adolescents who were, you know, had like some anxiety and things like that too. Maybe some ADHD and some other stuff. And, um, had a session with a psychiatrist that came in to talk about different medications that he was using for ADHD and what the typical profile of his young male clients looked like with ADHD. I thought I was having a joke played on me. Like he read my life. Like I, I legit thought they were playing a joke. I would like thought some bootleg version of Ashton Kutcher was going to come out and I was they going to be like, gotcha. And I was like, I'm not lying, like at all. This was at uh whatever that barbecue place is in, in downtown Raleigh. Like it was literally had a little room over there. And I'm like, they are messing with me right now. No, they weren't. And I was like, This is more serious than I thought. In that moment, I was like, this is like way more pronounced than I realized. Then I had a really, a really horrible incident in my doc program that reminded me in spring of 2020 that reminded me of horrible experiences I had in my academic career in undergrad, in high school, in middle school. And um, we had this test. It was for that research design class I was talking about. 50-question tests, you know, it's a three-hour class, 50 short answer questions, okay? 49, well, 49 of those questions are short answer and are things like, here's the research study we had to use and you had to understand, like, you know, what's the external validity and what what could you do to improve the external validity What's the internal validity and, you know, Alpha Kronbach and all this stuff that like I still barely know. And um, then for question 50, you had to write a four page double spaced uh, review of uh, a critique of this journal article. And I'm like, I'm a good writer. I write well. I write In my own approach, under my own time, the amount of time that it takes me to write is not an indicator of my knowledge of this topic or how well I can communicate this. This is honestly a discriminatory exam for people who are neurodivergent. And I am struggling, (laughs) like I am struggling. Five of us didn't finish the exam. One of those people, their laptop broke, so like they get a pass, right? And then like, so out of the four left who didn't finish, I was the worst. I had a page done of like question 50 and I was, I was, no, you know, I, I don't dislike the professor. The professor's a nice guy. Um, but I was like, I was so pissed. I was like, I'm never letting this bullshit happen to me ever again. I'm going to go get my diagnosis right now. Like you're not, nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> like, I was just like, you're not going to do this.
0: The thing about ADHD is that the mechanisms and chemical pathways are fundamentally the same regardless of our gender, race, sexual orientation, etc. But the way symptoms present vary based on things like societal expectations. Women are typically underdiagnosed or aren't diagnosed until later in life and tend to show more of the inattentive rather than the hyperactive aspects of ADHD due to social pressures. Black and Latinx children are not only diagnosed less than children who are white, but oftentimes are less likely to receive treatment as well. But it's more than that, as Wes explains.
2: And ADHD presents often differently in people of different genders, right? It doesn't always present the same. You know, it doesn't always present the same in men, right? Like it's, it presents in a multitude of ways. Like there's some like kind of core components, but there's different expressions of it. And it can look differently. And a lot of times it can look differently in women. I don't even think, I can't think of any studies I've seen where it's even looked at people who identify as like non-binary or outside of like male or female right so like that's a whole other area to even like explore and get into you know you talk about uh, women of color and black women and indigenous women and um you know non-binary folks and like everyone and it's just it's just like um you know greater marginalization in those issues and unfortunately you have a lot of people who are in these areas who you know are clinicians or physicians or nurse practitioners or whoever that just add to this right they're not helping in this area and uh, they're doubling down on these things that just aren't true and there's no real science to support that and that's it's it's horrible and that you know for you know black men and you know when i was a boy it was Um, We're either overdiagnosed or we're underdiagnosed, right? Or misdiagnosed. And, you know, a lot of oppositional defiant disorder because we don't agree with someone saying something racist to us, right? And it's, you know, it's not, you know, um, mental health and the DSM is not math. Um, And then, like, you know, my math students are like, well, there's theoretical math. Okay, all right, whatever. Math to, like, the rest of the normal population (laughs) um like you know 2 plus 2 is 4 um as far as i know it's always 4 and so it's not it's not like that all the time with mental health you know we're still trying to understand these things and uncover these things and define them and that's why there's different editions of the DSM and we update it and that's why Asperger's went away and it's an autism spectrum now and that's why it's not ADD anymore it's ADHD and all because we change and more people get into these fields and are like no we can't address it like this no autism is not a medical condition it's a normal variant of the human brain and it's always existed and these people have amazing skills just like other people do and weaknesses just like other people do and when we really respect that and take away these systemic neurotypical barriers. They do amazing things in their area because they can approach problems in different ways. And, it's, 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 and that's what it is.
1: So Wes mentioned the word neurotypical. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. Neurodiversity describes the variation in human brains, literally the diversity in types of thinking. To be neurotypical means you process stimuli like most other people. Anything that doesn't quite fit into the mold of the majority may be called atypical or neurodivergent, another important word Wes uses. These words are simply descriptors of how a person's brain works in comparison to others. It's neither good nor bad.
2: But like a lot of ADHD folks or neurodivergent folks, specifically like ADHD because, um, well, let me say specifically folks who are ADHD and um, allistic. And allistic just means like not autistic. And so the reason why I say that is because... um, the majority of the way that I communicate still aligns with neurotypical culture. Right. And so like neurotypical culture, as in, you know, people who have, you know, the most, uh, normally or most frequently found variant of the human brain within society. And that's, you know, it goes into all these other power structures and stuff. And so, um, ADHD, like I ramble and all this other stuff, and that is a component of this because there's 50 million things floating in my head, and I, I have a very hard time picking one of those out. But I still know how to talk through those paradigms and all that. My 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 uh, processing is not quite the same as someone who is autistic. I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. It's just a difference in how our, our, our brains are wired. And there's strengths and weaknesses just like their strengths and weaknesses of being neurotypical. And so through my work with students moving forward that Dana Thomas and I co-founded at NC State, which is like a career focus group for NC State students who are autistic, and um, just learning more about what it means to be autistic and just, you know, I didn't know a whole lot before that. I just saw that our students who were autistic had an issue with trying to get employment because people were just basically misunderstanding them. And I was like, this isn't right. We got to do something. And so Dan and I just did something and it, you know, it wasn't perfect, but we made it work and we changed it and it's grown and we're still growing. We're still ironing some things out. But like, then I realized that, you know, this is identity and it's not really a medical issue. And, you know, it's um, all these other things, right? You can be autistic and have an intellectual disability. You can be autistic and not have an intellectual disability. You can be neurotypical and have an intellectual disability. Like these are two separate things, right? And so... Uh, I was like, man, this is really deep. And then I realized (laughs) I laughed. It was really not funny. Then I realized I was doing something really bad. Right. And like the first year, you know, maybe like uh, around like the second year when I realized that I was like, okay, we got to change this. Here I am having this group for autistic students led by no one that's autistic, having no involvement by anyone that's autistic. And I'm like, "I I would not want to go to anything for black folks that <laughs> was not led by anyone black, right? Or like, I'm like, I can't believe that I just did that, right? And so I was like, okay, I need autistic adults who are professionals who can come here and who can help to give me some advice, who can help the work of our students and all that. Like, I, I'm not going to per- contribute to things like this. And so it's been great. And like, you know, I, I firmly believe in the concept of iron sharpens iron. And I have been... I have been sharpened by my students and the professional advisory board who's uh, contributes um, to this. And like, it hit me. I was like, you know what? Like they own this. This is, this is who they are. Like the, um, some of the, they use like the hashtag uh, openly autistic and actually autistic, which is something that only people who are part of the autistic community should use. And, um, I was like, I need to own this. Right. I didn't really this whole like area of like neurodiversity, which, you know, is a um, sociopolitical construct. Like it's a, you know, a movement, but it's also like an aspect of diversity and then like the neurodivergent community. I'm like, I'm part of this community. And my experience as a black male has a lot of value within this community, especially one who's a clinician, especially one who's working on a doctorate He's Like I need to own this.
1: Wes makes an important point of owning identity and letting people speak for themselves. Instead of assuming what's best for autistic students, he found a way for people with autism to advocate for themselves. Everyone has different needs, which is why we want to take a look at how we do science and restructure things. Only each person is best poised to tell their own story. Remember, there's more to each story than you may think.
0: Circling back to our conversation around ADHD, we also want to talk a little bit about the ways in which ADHD is connected to increased use of drugs, alcohol, and other substances, and different ways we can approach the topic of substance abuse.
2: So, I had a lot of substance abuse issues, and it's very common with ADHD. It means it's, it's it's a it's a co-occurring um, dynamic with a lot of other things, right? And there's uh, sociopolitical elements to how we approach. Um, the use of substances within the US. And um, one of my favorite researchers is a brother named Dr. Carl Hart, who has an amazing book that he wrote. It's one of my favorite books is called High Price. And there's a subtitle I don't remember. But it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I love I love the stuff that he does. But he talks about like the actual pharmacology of drugs and all these sorts of things. I'm like, yeah, they can, like hurt us when we have other issues that are going on and it's compounded within that and all this sort of stuff and so he's not like a big disease he's not a disease model person at all because there's like the disease model and then there's like the uh, like i guess like medical model i can't think of the word for it now but like the disease model is basically like you know substance abuse is a disease of the brain that's like what 12-step programs follow and stuff and i don't i do and i don't subscribe to that like if it works for you that's okay and i have people in my family who you know are sober and have been sober for a long time my mom um and other people and you know those people follow a disease model and that's great i'm never going to tell them that that's wrong because that helped them to get to a point that they needed uh and then i know people who don't use that model right so anyway um but there's some really cool elements with that and like the way that we address substance abuse and we just make it this um character flaw of like oh you're just bad and you're just not doing well and that's not true people have been using substances since the beginning of time right and it's just it's an aspect of you know our culture and well, the the way that we use it in the United States is really a reflection of the culture. We're in a high stress culture. We have all of these underlying things that really aren't that underlying that cause a lot of additional anxieties. So a lot of times people hear about the uh, you know a study. They just know. I don't even know who made it or when, but it's like, yeah, you know, there was a study and there was a rat and it was in a cage and they put, you know, a lever and that lever had heroin and the rat just kept hitting that lever and, you know, it died of overdose. Like, there you go. It's addictive. And so, um, this was not Carl Hart's, Dr. Carl Hart's um, study, but he talks about it in that book. The book is awesome. I love that book. And um, so a scientist said, okay, well, let's, let's like dissect that study, right? A a rat's natural environment is not a cage. Rats are not isolated animals, they are communal animals. So they built this like giant terrarium that was like the size of an entire room that had like tunnels and like plants and other things and areas to hide. And there was a bunch of other rats in there too. And then they still had levers for, you know, different substances they could use. None of the rats died of substance abuse. Some of them, you know, took a couple hits and had fun and did their thing, right? And so um, (laughs) what we see is that environmental stressors greatly impact you know, our bodies need to find a coping mechanism, right? And we don't do a lot of education around mental health and, you know, accurate depictions of what substances do to you, right? Like meth mouth is not a thing, right? That That is not a uh, pharmacological or toxicological uh, uh, impact or effect of meth, Uh a lot of times people who take meth are in lower income areas, in rural areas, they already had poor dental hygiene anyway, and now they're taking this drug that gives them a lot of energy. And I mean, honestly, there's not a big difference between Adderall and uh, crystal meth. Like chemically, there's not a big difference at all. And so um, it gives you all this energy and you're like, you know, it's, it stimulates, uh, suppresses your appetite and all this stuff, but they just stop taking care of their teeth. Like it's not, like people say, like, well, you know, you eat, you, you smoke crack and you get all skinny and all this sort of stuff. Did you see Rob? I mean, he's dead now. He's been dead for years. But Rob Ford, he was like a governor of some province in Canada, and he was smoking crack. And he was actually apparently a good governor. And he was not skinny. He was a large guy. Right. So we have all these, you know, um, social political ideas about what drugs do and why they're bad and all this stuff that is um, wrapped in privilege and patriarchy and racism and all this other stuff. So like you had that first of all going on. It doesn't mean that there. It doesn't. It it doesn't negatively impact people when they're abusing it, though, right? You still need to get help. I'm not, not advocating for people to just willy-nilly just, just, toke, toke up all day long, just do whatever. Like no. I mean, there's. I'm talking about a whole different paradigm shift of like education and like the actual you know chemical structures of these drugs and stuff like this.
0: paradigm shift sounds complicated and costly. Some people may ask why we need to change anything. Science still works, society still functions, culture keeps going, and the world keeps turning. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right?
1: Well, things aren't functional for everyone, as this recent pandemic has shown. I guess sort of going back to the very start of all of this, that COVID has pretty much made trauma and conflict unavoidable. Like, all of the cracks were there in the foundation of things. It was just sort of like under this constant stress of like, like you had mentioned, you don't have daily busyness to sort of distract you from things. You don't have the daily commute. You don't have like talking with coworkers. You don't have that structure and that routine that it's sort of like all of these cracks in the foundation are finally pushed to their limits. And so you're like, part of me is like this could be a chance for that real permanent change because it's like your house is collapsing either you decide to address it and you rebuild it stronger or you let it fall and you're homeless like those are the two kind of outcomes and I'm hoping that everything will be structured or like restructured in a way that supports everyone instead of it just being like or we're gonna leave the crack in the foundation in that corner. It's fine if that like bedroom falls off the cliff. It's good. It doesn't matter. Of like, how do you make a solid support system for everyone? Like, I really hope that it comes. Like, this is a chance to rebuild stronger in terms of culture and society. But I'm not optimistic enough to fully believe that. If that makes sense. Like, like that bit of like, yeah, change can happen. And it's good. We can do this. And then there's also like this has been going on for how long in, like, collective human society? Like, it could be the final like point that gets us to real, lasting change, or it could just be, like, another flash-in-the-pan kind of thing. But I do think COVID and the general, like, collective human anxiety about everything and, like, having people that essentially shelter in place for such an extended amount of time, like, you don't have the option to avoid certain things. Like if you're having like domestic issues well, you're at home all the time, so you have to address it. Like you can't just like turn off the like TV if you're at home and like avoid protests. Like it's, it's there, it's constant. It's for a lot of people, that's just how life is anyways, but it's sort of like everyone's adjusting and seeing what other people are going through in a way that you can't just sort of be like, nope, put the blinders on and, like, avoid it, It's it becomes a thing of, like, you have to look at it whether you like it or not. I have this, like, image of someone, like, the annoying, like, toddler that's, like, always there and keeps asking why, like, constantly of, like, essentially if you could make, like, culture into a person's body and, like, have them, like, sit down with the toddler and just being, like, they're constantly being asked, well, why? Well, Why? why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Like this constant, like not nagging force, but just sort of like this bit of agitation that keeps pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. And you can either like snap and be like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's finally do that. What you've been saying, like, let me address this. Or it's like, I'm going to go so far into denial that like you just fall apart.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, It's so accurate. I love that analogy you have of it's like your house is collapsing and, you know, either you're just going to let it collapse or you're going to get some help and try to figure out what you can do about this thing. Like, can we rebuild a new house? Can I like share (laughs) space with someone else? You know, what can I do to not be crushed under this? And, you know, that's, it's a really hard balance when we talk about, um, any aspect of our mental health, because we live in such of a rugged individualistic society that val um, like I mean, there's pros and cons to individualism. There's pros and cons to collectivism. Um, I, but there's something to be said when you are valuing one on a pedestal, well, it's when you are valuing individualism on a pedestal and just say like the other one is like not valid right i mean there's something very destructive about that woven deeply into um i I didn't want to say woven deeply into the fabric of our country because everyone says that and i hate using cliches but i mean that is like the reality of it right and so um you don't like I, i hate like telling people to like, yeah, man, you got to do something, right? Like, you gotta, you gotta get up, you gotta gotta pull this together and get up. Cause I don't want to give that, like, pull up, pull yourself up from your bootstraps thing. And like, we have a lot of resilience as people and like the more marginalized identities you have, you're resilient out to yin-yang, you know? And so, just saying that to people doesn't help. You have every right to acknowledge the, the depth, of the emotion and the pain and the hurt of the things that you have experienced and what that has done to you. Like it's okay and necessary to take the time to sit in that space and unpack it and understand what it has meant for you. Because when you do that, you understand that despite all of those horrible things, you've learned some things from that too. You've become stronger in some areas of those. And that doesn't invalidate the negative experience and the pain that is very real. And at the same time, it's also like, okay, like take your time and process this. Now that we've processed it some, let's start thinking about what are some of the strengths that you've gotten out of that time, right? What are some of the wounds that are gonna stick with you for a while? How do you take both of those things All of those things and move forward. And, you know, that's really um, what, you know, counseling is. And, you know, your um, neuro identity um, is an aspect of that. Because if you're not neurotypical, if you're dyslexic or ADHD or autistic or you have dyspraxia or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like there's the odds are stacked against you and you have experienced something at some point in time that has, um, been like traumatic in its its own way. And so that's like, I, I love that analogy because even within that, like short few words, you said all of that.
0: In this episode, we touched on quite a few things. What neurodiversity means, Wes's experiences with ADHD and how these experiences might be shaped by social norms ways to approach substance use outside of just completely abstaining from them, and how COVID-19 is impacting neurodivergent individuals. And this is only a start. These topics certainly deserve more than just one episode.
1: The key thing is that neurodiversity is an important factor to consider in STEM because not everyone thinks the same way. That's the beauty of being different. Conditions like ADHD can provide new ways to interpret situations, solve problems, and expand our understanding of the world but can also have its challenges, especially when we as a culture try to force people into one way of being. In order for science and society to truly be inclusive, we need to recognize that ADHD, autism, and other unique ways of thinking are intrinsically valuable and worth respecting. A global pandemic has amplified the conversation about neurodiversity. We just need to keep it going.
0: For more information regarding what we discussed in this episode, please be sure to check out our show notes. A transcript of this episode can be found on our website at queerscience.show. If you like this episode, you can tell us why by tweeting at us at queer You can also find us on Facebook as Queer Science or follow us on Instagram at queer We are even on TikTok too, and you can find us at Queer Science. The Queer Science team believes that educational content should be accessible to all and we are a small team of 20-somethings working to bring this podcast to our audience for free. If you like our work, consider giving the co-host a tip by supporting us at patreon.com queerscience You can also donate to our GoFundMe, which allows for us to afford microphones, recording software, and website upkeep. We also have merch too, featuring the Queer Science logo and more original designs by our co-host R. Want to support us? You can find out more by checking out our website at queerscience.show.